this edition of the JNNP podcast. My name is Colin Mahoney and I'm the JNNP podcast editor. Joining me today on the podcast is Dr. Oliver Robinson, group leader and principal research associate at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, University College London, and lead author on a recent paper published in JNNP reviewing the translational neurocircuitry of anxiety. Many thanks, Dr. Robinson, for joining us to discuss your paper. Thanks for having me. Well, look, anxiety is a very frequent and often disabling problem, and it cuts across many areas of medical science. Yet our understanding of the mechanisms leading to anxiety continues to evolve. So perhaps you could start by explaining to our listeners the differences in phenomenology used to classify anxiety. Yes, of course. So we uh, make a distinction based on animal research, and it's, it's a model rather than a you know, definitive you know, statement that this is the difference. But there's a distinction made between fear and anxiety. And that's based on the idea that fear is the response to a predictable, discrete, um, negative outcome. So if, for example, I see a spider and I'm a spider phobic, um, I show a fear response to that spider. I'm seeing it. It's there. I'm afraid of it. Whereas anxiety, on the other hand, is the response to kind of diffuse, unpredictable, uncertain negative outcomes. So, for example, if you take a spider phobic uh, into a room and you tell them there is a spider somewhere in this room, they can't see the spider, there's no spider that's actually eliciting a negative response, but they're waiting for this unpredictable thing potentially to occur, the spider to appear. And so whilst they're in that room, they're going to be feeling what we refer to as an anxiety response. Now, this dissociation actually comes from 20-odd years of, of animal research looking at fear conditioning and anxiety conditioning using things like electrical shocks. And what perhaps we'll talk about today is it looks like there is a dissociable uh, set of neural circuitry that is responsible for responding to predictable threats, predictable shocks or the spider in front of you versus unpredictable threats. So the spider in the room, for example. So that's the distinction we make between fear and anxiety. Fear responds to a predictable, known negative outcome. Anxiety, the response to uh, diffuse, uncertain negative outcomes. I think a key point of the of the paper is your attempt to identify shared neural circuits. Um, so maybe you can you can give us a, a overview of some of the key anatomical structures within these circuits that are taught to modulate anxiety. Yes, of course. So the sort of the two important subcortical structures are the amygdala and the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, or the BNST. Now, the story here is getting more complex as we go along because both of these are very small regions, but they also have lots of different subunits in them. But so I'll just zoom out and give you a kind of very rough and ready kind of idea about what those two regions might be doing. But bear in mind that as we um, you know, learn more about them, obviously, there'll be more nuance to this story. But the kind of classic idea is that the BNST, the bed, nucle bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, is more involved in these unpredictable, diffuse, long-term uh, uh, anxiety respondings, whereas specifically the central nucleus of the amygdala is more responsible for um, responding to these predictable negative outcomes. So the BNST, more anxiety, the central nucleus of the amygdala, more fear. Now, as I say, that'll probably get more complicated as we learn more about the subunits of these regions. But uh, we also have more cortical regions, higher up uh, regions that are um, involved in, in modulating these more subcortical regions. Now, most of the work here is done in, in rodents, if I'm honest, and we have uh, in the rodent medial prefrontal cortex, so the bit of the prefrontal cortex that's right down the midline of the brain, um, in the rat, at least, we have these two regions, the infralimbic uh, and the prelimbic. They're right next to each other. 
but they have uh, dissociable uh, roles in fear and anxiety. So the prelimbic is more about uh, interacting with the bed nucleus dystria terminalis and driving anxiety responses, so these responsible responses to uh, long-duration unpredictable threats, whereas the infralimbic is more involved kind of through a slightly circuitous route in uh, activating the central nucleus, the amygdala, and the, uh, the fear output. So that's the kind of relatively simplistic story that's coming out of, of the animal work. So um, you're, you're kind of making a very uh, complex area um, seem quite simple there. I, I think, um, as you already alluded to, that there's a lot of um, experimental paradigms, particularly in the, uh, in the animal field, that have been used to define the neural circuitry of anxiety. Um, maybe you could go into some more detail about these approaches and uh, perhaps their, their translation to, to humans and some of the key findings from these experiments. Yes, so most of the work uh, that I'm talking about is using um, electrical shocks. So the original animal work looking at threat of unpredictable shocks in the case of anxiety or predictable huge electrical shocks in, in the case of fear. And I think what's been uh, important over the last, let's say, decade or so is taking some of these paradigms that have been used in rodents and using them uh, in humans. So um, what we've actually been able to do is take the exact same paradigm. So when you have like threat of unpredictable shock or threat of predictable shock in the rat, you can then take that up to the humans and you can do the same. You can threaten them with electrical shocks. That's actually what we do in our in our day-to-day um, -day work in the lab. We have fun with uh, electrical shock machines and shocking humans. But this is kind of important because if you want to be able to directly translate neural circuitry across animals and humans, I think it's very important, at least in part, to use kind of the same paradigm so that you can map out the exact same circuitry uh, across uh, species. Having said that, there are many other, as you alluded to, um, models of fear and anxiety. And there's certainly a lot more in, in humans. So for example, uh, there's a low dose of CO2. This is often thought of a as more of a model of panic disorder. So we don't really, we can't really sense when we're suffocating, if it's uh, the air that we're breathing has increasing levels of, uh, of CO2, but our bodies can't. So we can't, we can't consciously notice it, but obviously um, because we're lowering in uh, sort of our oxygen content is, is decreasing, our blood starts pumping a lot faster and, and we get these physiological responses. So it's a model of um, panic in, in humans where we can basically kind of make people panic without them necessarily realizing it. And then there's all sorts of other uh, models. So humans are diurnal species, so we can turn the lights off, we can put people in the dark, and we can look at how that affects them. There are sort of you know, a, a whole host of, uh, of different mechanisms uh, and different, uh, different paradigms that, that we can use. But I think the, the, the kind of key one that we're focusing on in, in this review paper is the first one that I mentioned, which is this uh, using electrical shocks, predictable or unpredictable, to model fear or anxiety. And I think you, you also go into some detail about saying it's, it's not necessarily uh, one, one area kind of failing, but it's, it's actually often problems with connections and perhaps dysregulation across brain regions. Yes, for sure. I mean, anxiety, I think perhaps a lot more than any other psychiatric condition has very clear adaptive function. So we all feel anxious, right? Not only people with an anxiety disorder, but everyone feels anxious. And that's because anxiety is an adaptive response. It primes you to escape from harms. So I don't think it's ever really appropriate to talk about anxiety as kind of a, a dysregulation or, or, or some kind of pathology. What happens in an anxiety disorder is that these 
normally adaptive responses. So I'm walking home in, uh, at night and it's dark and I'm feeling anxious and uh, I see something out the corner of my eye and I'm worried that that might be an assailant and I run away, but actually it's just a leaf and it's fine. But that's actually something that we want. We want to have this kind of adaptive response. But if when I get home after you know being home in the dark, that anxiety doesn't dissipate and it sticks with me for days, weeks, months, and it becomes crippling and I don't want to leave the house, that's when it becomes a kind of pathological state. So I think what we're learning more and more about is that this neural circuitry that we're talking about is a normative um, set of circuits. It's about priming and, and, and readying the individual to uh, escape from harm. What we're trying to understand now is why is it, what is it about those circuits that in some people perhaps get turned on all the time? They get stuck in the kind of primed and ready to avoid harm phase, whereas in other people they're, they're perfectly uh, functional and they turn on and off when, uh, when relevant. So I think that's perhaps the, the better way of thinking about the circuitry is it's kind of like, you know, the car is stuck in fifth gear, which is great when you're going fast, but when you're trying to start the car, it becomes very difficult. My point is that it's a normative function that gets stuck in uh, on phase. I suppose then turning to, to, to those individuals who uh, get kind of um, stuck in those on phases, you know, how, how does the model that you propose, these translational models, help better um, develop treatments or indeed help us use existing treatments more efficiently? So this is a very, very good question. And, you know, you could zoom this out for all cognitive neuroscience and ask, how does the neuroscience help with treatment? And I think there's sort of two, two aspects of this is that one thing I think from a patient perspective, we have to be quite clear that any clinical value uh, we're going to get from this is probably a long way off. It's not like, here's the circuitry, now we're going to solve the problem. But um, what it does allow us to do is get closer to refining and being more precise about what it is we mean about these underlying processes. So one thing I like about this model and then this neural circuitry idea of fear and anxiety is it's falsifiable. It's like, this is what we think fear is, this is what we think anxiety is. Now, there's lots of nuance there, but we can see dissociable circuitry. So the question then becomes, what is it that we can use to intervene on those circuitries? So we know, for example, that Serotonergic medication is the first-line recommended treatment, things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, first-line treatment for anxiety. And we can start to map out what that does to this underlying circuitry. So there's work with threat of unpredictable shock that shows that, for example, um, at the early phases of an SSRI, we see these increases in anxiety responding. But then after several weeks, we get these decreases in anxiety responding. And this is something that we see clinically, right? We know that it takes several weeks for an SSRI to have an effect on a patient. And also that for some patients early on, they get this kind of increase in anxiety response. So what we can start to do is by using this circuit kind of understanding is try and understand what is it that the SSRIs are doing to that circuitry. So we started doing some work in, in humans that shows that in a, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, we have these subcortical regions and we have these cortical regions and they're working in concert. So one idea is that, for example, the prelimbic, which if you recall, I mentioned earlier, seems to be more involved in uh, anxiety than fear, is involved in kind of uh, pushing uh, the bed nucleus dystria terminalis. It's kind of exciting that and it's driving anxiety responding. Whereas under other circumstances, the infralimbic might be pushing the fear responding or they might be inhibiting one another. So are there things that medications are doing perhaps that are shifting the balance of power in these circuitry? pushing one forward and pushing the other back. So driving anxiety, inhibiting anxiety. So there's um, some work that we've done that suggests that might be how SSRIs work. But critically, they might only work like that in some patients. So one thing that we, we're looking at over the next five to 10 years is, is there something we can find in individuals 
based on our understanding of the way that the circuitries work, that tell us this is a candidate for, for example, an SSRI. This person will respond um, well to serotonergic medication. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, there may be many other people for whom they won't work. And that's obviously what we see clinically, right? SSRIs work for some people, they don't work for others. So if at the, at the outset, we could actually say, this is a candidate for medication, this, this person is not a candidate for medication, we would save people an awful lot of side effects and time and harm. On the other end of the spectrum, psychological therapies, we can do the same thing. We can see, are there different you know, circuit responses to CBT versus selective serotonin uptake inhibitors? I mean, we're really at the early stages of this work, but kind of the long-term goal in terms of clinical outcomes is, can we actually use this circuit understanding to put people into different categories who we think are better gonna to respond to different types of intervention, whether it's psychological uh, or, or pharmacological. So I think that's you know, a long way off, but without the understanding of the neuroscience underneath it, I think we're gonna find it very difficult to a priori put people into different treatment streams. But if we could, even if we could just improve prediction by about uh, 10%, 20%, we would you know, save a lot of harm, we'd reduce a lot of side effects, and we'd, we'd make a lot of people better, faster. And that's kind of the long-term goal, I think, of this work. Mm. And so I suppose like having uh, understanding that those circuit responses allow that more uh, precision-based medicine approach uh, with, the, with these um, psychiatric illnesses. And so you, again, touched on the future there, but I guess this is a, a growing area. Um, so finally, you know, what are the future research priorities that you see in getting better understanding of the structural and molecular basis of anxiety? So, yeah, I can take you through perhaps five um, key areas. There's obviously a lot more, but five that we focus on in the article. Um, one is this idea of anxiety and fear not being an obvious single state, right? You're not anxious, you're anxious. You're not anxious, you're, you're anxious. It's much more of a continuum. And we see this obviously across all psychiatric and neurological disorders, really that they're, they're much more of a kind of continuum-based thing. So trying to better understand that. So what is it about, for example, normal adaptive anxiety that then transitions into pathological anxiety? That's obviously a spectrum. Some people are you know, anxious uh, more under certain circumstances than others, but then what causes that to transition to the more pathological state? But even within anxiety disorders, different people might have different um, levels of activity and different circuitry. And of course, within anxiety disorders, we have lots of different subcategories. We have panic, we have PTSD, we have generalized anxiety disorder, social phobia, and so forth. Like, are these different circuits involved in different processes in these different disorders, perhaps more as a spectrum? So better understanding, rather than we're going to do some research, and we're going to take patients, and we're going to take controls, and we're going to prepare them, can we actually look at this in a more kind of holistic way, looking at kind of spectrums of, of anxiety from very little to very high, um, where, the, where the disorders are kind of incidental to the overall kind of spectrum approach. Now, that's going to require big data, right? We're going to need lots, la much larger samples to look for these kind of continuous effects. And um, so that's, I think, one, one area of research, a big, bigger sample so that we can look for continuous measures. The second thing I think we need to look for is, you know, I gave that relatively simplistic story about the bed nucleus dystria terminalis being more about anxiety and amygdala being more about fear. But in reality, you know, these regions have lots of different subunits and we're only just beginning to understand it. And from the animal side of things, using things like optogenetics, where you can actually turn on and off and, and uh, intervene at the circuit level to better understand what those different things are doing. Because at some level, something predictable, when does predictable become unpredictable? There's going to be some threshold there, or there's going to be some, again, another continuum there. So better understanding how those different, different processes uh, relate. I, I think there's, there's a lot more to do there at the subunit level of different brain regions. 
And in humans, um, the advent of 70 uh, neuroimaging becoming a lot more common, a lot more places having 70 scanners, we can actually get the resolution to find and look at these subunits in humans. So, so that's it, getting, getting smaller, I guess, uh, is, is the next um, target. So that's num number one and number two. Uh, number three, I think if we could um, uh, look more at paradigms that are directly translational, and I touched on this earlier, so using exactly the same paradigm in a rodent as in a human, so threat of unpredictable shock in the rat and in a human, um, I think this is going to be really important for directly translating circuitries across humans. You know, I mentioned earlier about the prelimbic and the infralimbic in rats having these kind of um, subcortical regions having kind of distinct roles. In humans, we're really not sure, A, whether those regions exist, like functional homologues where those regions exist, and then if they do, what those functional homologues are. Importantly, if we want to be able to kind of make that translation, we need to be able to map that out better. And th the only way I think of doing that is to have exactly the same paradigms across humans and animal model. So that's number three. Number four, you know, a very obvious way that the circuit-based approach could be useful is by directly intervening in that circuitry. Now we've seen, you know, um, in, in some areas, things like depression, deep brain stimulation is becoming very popular and it's had kind of very mixed results. But if we understand the circuitry, we might be able to intervene. So a less invasive um, approach than deep brain stimulation might be things like uh, TMS, um, repetitive TMS, where we can actually, through the scalp, using um, uh, magnetic stimulation, actually target specific, specific brain regions. In fact, I think um, RTMS has actually been approved by the FDA in the US to uh, as a treatment for depression. So understanding how that might interact with, uh, with anxiety, I think will be important. So if we can actually intervene directly in the circuitry. And then, uh, oh yeah, finally, the fi final thing to think about is the, these disorders don't just, they don't exist in isolation. They, they interact with the environment, they interact with uh, development. So how these different pathologies emerge, I think will become really, really important. So not just studying anxiety uh, in adult humans, but how anxiety disorders develop and at what stage does it transition from perhaps sort of mild anxiety to, to something that might become a pathological anxiety disorder later later on in life. Um, there's relatively little work done with that. I mean, there are difficult the reasons for it, so it's hard to shock children, for example, is one one reason. But but in general, if we can actually build paradigms that are translational but also developmental, and we can look at how these disorders kind of emerge uh, throughout the lifespan, we might also be able to intervene a little bit earlier. So understanding what it is that the conditions that in the developing brain that, that make uh, anxiety disorders work and develop. So those are the kind of five uh, key areas that, uh, that, that I think we identify in the paper for future research. I want to thank uh, Dr. Oliver Robinson for joining us on the podcast today. Dr. Robinson is a group leader and principal research associate at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, University College London. And if you want to find out more on this topic, uh, go to the JNNP website where uh, this review is now available freely for download. Thank you. Thank you.